Well, guys, I, I am delighted to be here with you guys today. I don't know about you, but it, it is great to just kind of be together with people, um, be outside when the weather's nice. Hopefully it'll stay nice for a little bit here. Uh, we missed last week. So those of you who got together last week, uh, we missed out on that. But man, it's super, super excited to be here with you today. Um, I'm glad to, to be able to step in and give the message while Joe's in some, some uh, well-deserved vacation. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Jeremy God. I'm one of the board members here at, at Central City and um, just excited to be here with you today. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that my wife and I have realized, and I think that probably those of you who are parents have realized with your kids or those of you who are, have been kids in the past, realizes that kids can take after one or both of their parents in different ways. And we, uh, we experienced this in a variety of ways. One of the ways was our, our younger son takes after my wife, Heather, in one particular way, especially when he was little. And that is that he doesn't know a stranger. Um, he, he loves to go up and interact with people. He loves to talk with people. And he, he, he loves to go into an elevator and, and, and talk with a bunch of people. And, and so especially when he was younger. And as a four-year-old, there was a particular incident where we're sitting in an Arby's restaurant, and he decided he wanted to be a big boy. He wanted to go refill his, his drink himself. So we sat there at the table. We watched him walk up with his big old drink cup and go to the, the drink station, get ready to refill it. And he encountered there an older boy, maybe eight or ten years old, something like that. And uh, he just decided, you know, he was going to, in his most genuine uh, four-year-old smile on his face, go up and say, Hi, my name's Thomas. What's your name? And unsurprisingly, the older boy, being a cool older boy, uh, basically gives him kind of a little side-eye glance and continues refilling his drink and ignores him. Well, Thomas is not to be deterred, so he says once again, Hi, my name's Thomas. What's your name? And the boy doesn't even give a side-eye glance this time. He just continues filling up his cup and ignores him. Well, third time's the charm. So he says, hi, my name's Thomas. What's your name? And this time the boy's done filling his drink. He just kind of walks away with zero acknowledgement. And as parents, we're sitting here, our hearts are in our throats because we're thinking, oh my gosh, our little four-year-old's ego is just on the carpet now. He's going to come back in tears and, and just be, be crushed because of this incident. And surprisingly, though, um, you know, Thomas walks back to the table and he's, he's not crying. He's not visibly upset. He's more kind of has this curious, quizzical look on his face. And, and he got, comes up to us and he says to my wife, he says, Mom, that boy doesn't know his name. And so it was, it was not about his level of self-confidence at all. It was simply, of course, you know, the only reason why he could conceive of that this, this boy might not interact with him was that the boy, uh, unfortunately, didn't know his name. And so, um, you know, it worked out in the end. But, you know, if we think about it, one's, uh, a person's name, one's own name is, is known to be one of the things that um, is bonding in a conversation, right? So this is, has been seen in social scientific study after social scientific study. It's taught in customer service organizations and so forth. And you probably hear it, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're talking with someone or if you're calling up to, to get your phone fixed or something like that, you know, they'll, they'll repeat your name. It's because there's, it's showing there's this little bond that, that you're known, that you're understood, and that, that it's, it's your identity. Um, and, and really, not as much anymore these days, but once upon a time, uh, one's name was much more defining. It really, your, your name aligned you with, with 
a certain group and it was your identity. And so if you think about it, think about like common last names. And I just kind of geek out about this stuff. So forgive me. But, um, you know, common last name, Johnson, right? Wasn't really Johnson. It was John's son. You know, you were identified with who your father was, who your family was. O'Reilly were the people who were of the Riley clan, right? Svensson and so forth. Unless we get too patriarchal, I actually saw a, uh, a, a an Icelandic detective series recently on Netflix where some of the female actors' last names were Sven's daughter or even Olga's daughter. So that's kind of cool. Now, um, so it might be identifying you with your people, your father, that sort of thing. It also... Uh, some names identified you with a trade, right? So we think about that Smith, right? Where those was a family of people who made horseshoes and, and things like that. Uh, uh, masons were those who were bricklayers. Um, you know, coopers were people who made barrels, right? That's probably a niche industry these days. I don't know. But, um, you know, it identified with, with the trade that was handed down from generation to generation. It was part of your identity, right? All this living up to a family name. Um, it could be where you were from. So Dinapoli is people who were from Naples, Italy, and so forth. Well, my last name, my last name is Gott, G-O-T-T. -T. And I've done a little bit of research on this, and, and we're kind of actually unfortunate in that regard. So had we been of German stock, it might not have been so bad. Because if, if you know any German, you know that the word Gott actually means God. So it's, it's fairly, you know, positive and so forth. Um, actually had a soccer referee who... Uh, kind of teased me about that once. He was, he was a German guy, and he's like, oh, you must be so exalted or whatever. And so had that been the case, had we actually had German blood in us, that would have been wonderful. We do not. We're much more Welsh and Old English, and unfortunately in that language, got is much more akin to the word gutter uh, or someone who lives by an open kind of stinky ditch. So not quite so, it wouldn't work out so well for us in that regard. Well, even, even in biblical times, names were super important. Um, you know, they, they either defined a person's character or maybe they're kind of aspirational of what their parents wanted them to be or to become. We think of the patriarch Abraham. Uh, he didn't start out as Abraham. He started out as Abram. Pretty close. But he started out as Abram, which means great father. It's a pretty good name. Uh, but then, then God kind of gets a hold of him and, and he, he meets with him and, and his wife, Sarah. And even though they're super old and well beyond childbearing age and they don't have any children, he says... I am going to give you so many descendants, so many descendants that is going to be more than the stars you can see in the sky, more than the sand you can see on the seashore. And I'm going to change your name to reflect that. So he changes it from Abram, great father, to Abraham, slight difference, meaning the father of many nations. We see, too, as we get to the New Testament, that this plays out as well. Uh, the Apostle Paul, right? One of the most prolific authors in all of the New Testament, writing letters everywhere. Um, he didn't start out as Paul. He actually started out as Saul. His parents named him for one of the great historic kings of the nation of Israel, and probably that was kind of aspirational. They want him to do great things too. Uh, but then he met Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and his life did a 180, and he went by Paul. And Paul actually means little one, kind of speaking to the humility of, of meeting with Jesus. Um, God himself, uh, in God's name, you, you probably are familiar with the interaction between Moses and, and the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh says to Moses, who is this God? What is his name? I want you to tell me, is this, is this the God of the harvest? Is this the God of the sun, the moon? Who, which God is this? So I can kind of know how to appease him and how to get around him and how to box him in and that sort of thing. And God says to Moses, no, look, tell him, tell him my name is I am. Um, because 
He can't box me in. I'm, I'm not just this God of the moon. I'm not just the God of the harvest or what have you. Um, I am the God who is. I am the really real God. Um, so he lays that out. A little bit further on in the story, um, we see that uh, Moses has just gotten the Ten Commandments. And God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you my name. And so we read in Exodus 34 um, that the Lord came down in a cloud and he stood there with Moses and he proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord. And, and that part of things is probably, you know, it probably makes sense to us. You know, our, the, the name is just kind of like, you know, here's a, this placeholder of, you know, it's Steve. And so I say Steve because I need him to know that I'm talking to him in a room of a bunch of different people. Right. It's kind of a placeholder. And so we think of that with, you know, as God is proclaiming his name, the Lord, the Lord. But he goes on. And part of the proclamation, proclamation of his name, he continues on and says, he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And he goes on for like a whole nother paragraph or so. just kind of describing his name, but what in essence is his character and his core of his being, his identity. And, you know, if we think about it, for us these days, things are a little bit different. Um, some ways things are very different now. We're not as tied to family. We're not as tied to place. We're not as tied to a lifelong trade or career. But we do still look for identity. Uh, whole industries have been built up that match your temperament to a job that you will succeed in or uh, do really well at or, or enjoy. Um, we change majors five, six different times as we go throughout our college career. It's very, it's very rare to work for the same company as you, as you work your way through the span of your whole career. And then we, we define and kind of redefine ourselves regularly in the, in the presence that we build for ourselves on social media and, and the, the image that we project. And so, ironically, the one thing that remains the same throughout time is that we still have this longing for identity. There's these deep philosophical questions, right, that you, you probably thought about in, in college. Maybe you had to take a philosophy class or whatever. It's like, who am I? Do I matter? Will my life make any difference at all? Am I known? Am I understood? Am I appreciated? Am I loved? Am I worthy of love? And these questions are as relevant today as they always have been. Uh, and in fact, at their heart, really, it's far less about like this theoretical philosophy, and it's much more kind of the core longing of our heart. And whether, you know, whether we're intentional about it or not, we're actually, we're actually asking and answering those questions to ourselves about ourselves on a regular basis, multiple times a day. Am I understood? Do I matter? Am I worthy of love? So maybe I'm, I'm at work and I get a kudos from a vice president saying, hey, you did a great job on that project. And I think, oh, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. Or maybe I put something out on social media and somebody trolls it and I get kind of criticized and, and I think, oh, I get angry or I, I, I feel bad about myself. Maybe I cook a good dinner for my family and, and everybody appreciates it. So I think, oh, I must be pretty good. Or I cook a good dinner and nobody appreciates it. And I'm angry because they should. And then I start to think, oh gosh, maybe I wasn't any good at all. And then every once in a while I cook a horrible dinner and nobody likes it. And I just think, oh, I'm just not very good. Because we base so much of our perception about ourselves on two things. Thing number one is my performance. Did I succeed or did I fail? And thing number two is others' opinions of me. Do they like me? Do they not like me? Do they approve of me? Do they not approve of me? 
Some of us are better at kind of playing the game than others. Some of us experience more success and have people tend to be drawn to us. Others of us maybe experience more failures than we do successes and, and we're not the life of the crowd. But regardless of whether we're good at playing the game or we kind of suck at it, um, basing our view of ourselves on others' opinions of us or on our performance can burn us either way. Because if you think about it, you know, when I'm not very good, when I'm not experiencing success, when, I, when I'm, you know, feeling others are saying bad things about me, it can be uh, easy next step to just be in, in shame and experience shame and experience depression around that. And when I am really good and I experience success, there's unwarranted pride. But not only unwarranted pride, but it, it comes with this, this treadmill effect of, hey, I just did a great job yesterday. But I have to have a repeat performance tomorrow and the next day and the next day, and I don't know if I can do it. And so I'm on this treadmill of always needing to succeed and avoid failure and keep going. And the thing about it is that this is normal to us, right? Probably, probably, I'm going to guess, for those of you who are wearing socks today, when you put on your socks this morning, you felt them for the first couple seconds or so, and then probably within 30 seconds, you cease to feel the socks on your feet, right? They're still there. They're still providing warmth. They're still providing, you know, uh, protection to your feet and so forth, but you don't think about them. And that's the exact same way as we think about, you know, our, our lives and how we're, we're responding internally to these cues of I'm good, I'm bad, I'm doing well, I'm not doing well, and so forth. So these things are second nature to us. They're normal to us. But the other thing about it is that that was not how we were made to be. The shame and depression, the pride and the fearful anxiety, we do see them very early on in the human story. Our first parents in the garden, Adam and Eve, that, that pride played into them when they, they ate that forbidden fruit because they wanted to gain wisdom. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to be their own boss. And then shame and fear after the fall when they hid from God because they know, knew that they had done wrong and they, they knew that they were, were not, not uh, in the right. So we see these things very early in the story. But, and this is important, we don't see them the very earliest. Even before all that, even before it hit the fan and uh, all that went down, we see that God creates the first people and his assessment is very good. Not very good because they were such lively conversationalists, not, lively, not very good because they dressed so snappily, not very good because they were so good at sports or whatever other reason that we would like to define ourselves, but simply very good because he had created them, he loved them, and he said so. Well, unfortunately, um, this, stuff, uh, this stuff persisted, right? It gets passed down. The shame, the depression, the pride, the fear, the anxiety, it got passed down through the generations, like a cursed family heirloom that you could never get rid of, and even unto us. Our first parents were made very good, but they could never live up to it, and neither can we. Not fully, certainly not perfectly. It's this whirlpool tugged down um, that we can't get free from. And we experience that too. So into that downward spiral, God came himself. He sent his son Jesus, who not only fully embodied the very good himself, but somehow, magically, miraculously applied that to us as well. Somehow, 
In Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we too are caught up with him and pulled out of that downward suck of the whirlpool. Somehow in Jesus, the very core of our identity is changed and moved toward the very unique and lovely individuals that we were created to be. One phrase that gets repeated over and over again in the New Testament is the little phrase, in Christ. And it's so, it's so basic. It's so just kind of like little Bible speak type stuff that we can just kind of blow through it when we're reading, right? In Christ. Of course that's there because it's talking about, it's the Bible, right? That I'm reading. But it's important. It's, it's especially true in Paul's letters where he repeats it more than 90 times. It's almost like he, he can't get over the marvel of it, that somehow we are caught up with Jesus, and we are being changed, and we are being made more and more like him in character and transformed more into who we were made to be. No longer are we defined at our core by our families or our trade. No longer are we defined even by the music that we like, the career that we have built, or our persona on social media. Um, and we're certainly not defined by how well or poor, poorly we perform by others' opinions of us. Our core identity is no longer as John's son or Olga's daughter, but as in Jesus. In Paul's letter to the early Christians in Ephesus, he gives us some memorable word pictures of just what this looks like. And we're going to look at some of those together from Ephesians chapter 1 and one verse from chapter 2. So you can follow along in your Bibles or on your phones if you would like. Um, as we read together, uh, I want you to pay attention to two things particularly. Thing number one is whenever we come across that little phrase that in Christ or the equivalent of that in him, in Jesus, etc., do a little mental underline and do a kind of a little tally of how many of those we encounter. And the second thing I want you to pay attention to is what are the things that are true of you because you are in Christ? How do those things answer the questions like, who am I? Am I worthy of love? What is my purpose? So let's, uh, let's read together. So the first section we're going to be reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And this, incidentally, the context of this is as, as like a, a poem of praise to God. And it's in, it's in that context that we see who we are in Christ. So it starts out. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And then further along in the chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And one last one, flipping over to chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. All right. Well, did you catch it? All those instances of in Christ? Anybody have a count on those? Ballpark? Six? Eight? Yeah. I, I, I had it maybe around eight or so. I don't know, six, eight, ten, something in there, right? So um, 
Yeah, so it's, it's in there all of the time in those, in those few short verses. And then what about those core questions? So if we think about it, like the questions that we ask ourselves, of, who am I? Am I accepted? Where do I belong? In verses 4 and 5, we see that we are adopted into the family. And we see that this isn't begrudgingly at all, but it's according to God's good pleasure. God is our loving Father. In other places in the, in the New Testament, he's referred to as Abba, which is a, a, a term for father or, or, or almost like daddy or papa. You think about like those of you who are dads or, or moms and, and you're, you're good dads or moms and you, and you bring your kids up on your lap and, and, and you read bedtime stories together or you snuggle together or those types of things. That's kind of the image that's portrayed of God as, as, our, as our loving father. And so we were adopted into his family. Um, in verse 13, we were included in Christ. You belong. So you are at the core of your being a beloved child of your, of your loving creator. The God of the universe loves you and welcomes you with joy into his family. Well, some other questions. Am I known? Am I understood? In verse 4, we see that God chose us before the creation of the world. So well before you were even born, God knew you. He knew your life. He knew everything that you would encounter. He knew everything that you would do, whether good or bad. And he loved you. We see in chapter 2, verse 10, that you are God's handiwork or work of art, that you are his work of art, a unique masterpiece in his hand. He knows you intimately. He loves who you are and who you can become. The question is, am I worthy of love or am I loved? There's a bit of irony here, right? Because we see in verses 6 and 7 that we have a need of forgiveness from God. But if we're honest, we know we all know that we do wrong. We all know that we can act selfishly. We all know that there's still some broken and twisted elements to us. So, but God uh, gives us the very forgiveness that we need in Jesus. And he does so lavishly. He says he, he lavishes on us. He dumps it on us. And I kind of envision, this is going to date myself, but I envision the old Oprah Winfrey show where she's like, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. So God's sitting there saying, you get some forgiveness. You get some, oh, you need some more? Here's some more. You know, he's just dumping and lavishing it on us. So the irony here is that there is nothing that we can do to earn the love of God. There's nothing we can do. We have no hope towards that end. No matter how many good intentions we have, no matter how many good actions we have. But the irony comes in in this. Yes, there's nothing that we can do. There's also nothing that we have to do. Because Jesus has already earned that on our behalf. And we are in him. And that's freeing, guys. That's, that's something that allows me, allows us to take risks. Because even though we might fail, that's okay. Because we know at our heart that the God of the universe still loves us in that moment, in our worst moments, that he still loves us. That frees us up to get off the treadmill of having to succeed every time and get off the treadmill of this anxious fear that maybe next time I'm going to fail. Maybe next time I'm not going to live up to others' expectations and what have you. Well, last, the last question we'll look at. Will my life make any difference? What is my purpose? In chapter 2, verse 10, we see that we're God's handiwork. And it says that we are created to do good things that he puts into our path. Think about that. How have you been uniquely created? What are the ways in which you can do good in this world? 
God has strewn things along our path. He's strewn opportunities along our path that he has created each of you uniquely to encounter and to do good in the world. You have a great purpose in life. You have an opportunity to do and to, to, to bring uh, honor to the name of God and to be a blessing to others simply in the ways that you were uniquely created. Well, um, all this is great, and we're kind of thinking about this, and it's, 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 it's right in front of us, in, in, in our hearts, in our minds. But what difference will this make in, in half of a week? What difference will this make to us in the day-to-day when we're worried that we might do a good job on our latest work assignment? What difference will this make to us when we're, we're thinking we can never quite live up to our expectations of our th- ourselves or our spouse's expectations of us or what have you? Um, what difference does it make when we're experiencing shame or depression or fearful anxiety? Well, it allows us to go back to the bedrock of who we are. It allows us to not be defined by our success or our failures, to not be defined by others' opinions of us. At the core of your being, you are defined by the unwavering, unchangeable, determined love of your creator for you. That because of Jesus, you are accepted and a part of the family. Let's take a quick sec to pray together. God, thanks so much for this day. Thanks for the beauty of it. Thank you that it didn't rain. Thank you that we can all be here together with people, and that is just fantastic. We thank you that you care about us so deeply, that you love us. Um, Thank you that you care about our physical health, our spiritual health, our mental health. Thank you for wonderful gifts like medicines, like counselors and friends who can be like Jesus with skin on to us. And thank you that you have pulled us out of the downward tug of the whirlpool in Christ. Amen.